This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Millions of people face legal problems every year. Take control of your rights with Legal Shield for help on a variety of legal issues such as preparing a will or fighting a speeding ticket. As a Legal Shield member, you'll pay an affordable monthly rate for access to an entire law firm instead of hefty hourly fees. Get the legal protection you deserve. Visit LegalShield.com and put a law firm in the palm of your hand today with Legal Shield. And now, on with the show. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick Ass News. In 2008, when Michael McFall was asked to leave his professorship at Stanford and join an unlikely presidential campaign, he had no idea that he would find himself at the beating heart of one of today's most contentious and consequential international relationships. As President Obama's advisor on Russian affairs, McFall helped craft the United States policy known as RESET that fostered new and unprecedented collaboration between the two countries. And then, as U.S. Ambassador to Russia from 2012 to 2014, he had a front-row seat when this fleeting, hopeful moment crumbled with Vladimir Putin's return to the presidency. Now he writes about it in a new book that combines history and memoir to tell the full story of U.S.-Russia relations from the fall of the Soviet Union to the new rise of the hostile, paranoid Russian president. From Cold War to Hot Peace, an American ambassador in Putin's Russia has been called an essential account of the most consequential global confrontation of our time, and today Michael McFall comes on the podcast to talk about it. He recalls being among the protesters outside the Russian White House during the attempted coup in 1989 and an early encounter with a young and, he says, unimpressive Vladimir Putin in the early 90s. He gives an insider's account of being with Secretary of State Hillary Clinton when she presented the infamous reset button and the lavish breakfast of illegal caviar that was the first meeting between Putin and the newly elected President Obama. He reveals how the Arab Spring wrecked the Russian reset, whether Dmitry Medvedev ever had any real power, and how President Obama reacted upon learning that Putin would be returning to the presidency. Michael talks about arriving to protesters in Moscow on his first day as ambassador. He details the Russian FSB's sinister surveillance campaigns and harassment of him and his family, both on the state-controlled media and in the streets. He attempts to describe Putin's worldview and why Putin views the U.S. as an existential threat, the elaborate efforts President Obama and his aides went to evade Russian wiretaps, and the FSB's extensive efforts to gain compromise on U.S. officials as well as certain wealthy American businessmen. Coming up with former U.S. Ambassador to Russia Michael McFall in just a moment. Michael McFall is professor of political science, director and senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He served for five years in the Obama administration, first as special assistant to the president and senior director for Russian and Eurasian affairs at the National Security Council, then as U.S. ambassador to the Russian Federation. Dr. McFall is also an analyst for NBC News and a contributing columnist to the Washington Post, and he's written a new memoir titled From Cold War to Hot Peace, An American Ambassador in Putin's Russia. Michael McFall, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Russia has been pretty much the focus of your whole career, first as an academic and then working in the Obama administration. I've tried to get away from it from time to time, yeah. just for the record, <laughs> yes. In fact, I wrote my PhD, my DPhil, about Southern Africa, but then uh -huh. Russia dragged me back. <laughs> How does a young man from Montana become interested in Russia initially? Uh, for me, it was pretty clear what the moment was. Uh, I moved to a town called Bozeman, Montana, from mm -hmm. Butte, Montana. I was looking to get an easy A in English, and my neighbor said, take debate class. That's the easiest way to get an A. And I did. I joined the debate class and then the debate team. And that year, the topic was how to improve uh, U.S. trade policy. And my partner and I ran a case for increasing trade to the Soviet Union. This is in 1979. 
and uh, specifically was to repeal the Jackson-Vanik Amendment to the 1974 Trade Act. So a pretty obscure thing <laughs> that I later participated yeah. in 30 yeah. years later. Uh, so that was it. Uh, that was the moment. And then uh, as a kid going to Stanford, uh, mm-hmm. I enrolled in, uh, as a freshman, first-year Russian and poli-sci 35, how nations deal with each other. And the combination of those two classes and the the moment we were in, it was a tense mm-hmm. time. And I had a theory that if we could just get to know these people a little bit better, it might reduce tensions. And so that was my original motivation. Yeah, you got to know them a lot better, it turns out. There's this great photo of you at the protest outside the Russian White House during the attempted coup in 1991. What was that experience like? Well, so... um as a kid, I decided to try to go study there. So my first trip abroad was to Leningrad, USSR, uh, 1983. Uh, imagine my mother in Montana when I called her up to say, <laughs> I'm going to, to the USSR. She thought uh, California was a communist place at that time. Uh, but over the next several years, I spent different periods of time there. Um, mm-hmm. In 1991, I was a 1990-91, I was a Fulbright scholar at Moscow State University and happened to be there in that crucial year of massive demonstrations against the Soviet system. And over time, got to know some of the leaders of that movement and and in my own kind of marginal way, participated in it as a with an organization called the National Democratic Institute. And that's that was then a, a period of activism in my career. So I've been an academic, an activist, and a government official. And those were activist times, and they were they were great years, I want to tell you, honestly. They, you know, We felt like we were part of something special. The end of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War. Uh, back then, we thought we were helping to build democracy in Russia. And remember, back then, they wanted us to be there. We weren't meddling yeah. in their internal it's affairs. It's hard to remember those times. Now. Yes, it is. But yeah. we were invited by the government after the, the Boris Yeltsin took over. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it didn't work out as planned. Yeah, and I was in Moscow around the same time, although I was a few years younger than you, I imagine. Mm -hmm. I was on a people-to-people trip. You were? Yeah. And, you know, looking back, it makes me wonder, what happened to all those young idealists who turned out to protest in 1991? I mean, I assume you're still friends with maybe some of them. Do they still have the fight in them, or are they a little more cynical today? Uh, different people went different ways. Mm -hmm. So some joined the Yeltsin government and then gradually became part of the system. And some of those people are working for Putin today. Mm. Another group uh, kept fighting and, uh, you know, had jobs in the Yeltsin government and then went into the opposition and then reemerged on the streets in Moscow back in December 2011 to protest against Putin again 20 years later. Not against Putin, but to protest again for democracy. And some of those people were my friends from 1991. And then a third group are living in exile. They, they left the country. Um, they're living in New York. They're living in Estonia, uh, living in London because they couldn't find a place in Putin's Russia. Yeah, and some of those friends, things didn't turn out so well for them. You were friends, I think you said, with uh, Boris Nemtsov, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Boris Nemtsov. You, you no, well, no, sorry, some Nemtsov. of them, yeah. yes, he was assassinated in uh, 2015. You're right about that. And he was one of those people, that, you know, a charismatic leader, democratically elected a couple of times as a, as a governor in Nizhny Novgorod, came to Moscow to be the first deputy prime minister for Boris Yeltsin, and many people thought, and, and, and Yeltsin implied, that he was the heir apparent. Yeah, that's right. What, what happened there? Was it just the economic collapse? Very, very, yeah. very precisely was the okay. economic collapse. So he came in in 1997, and then there was a financial collapse around the world in August 1998. It started in East Asia, but, but got to Moscow, yeah. and that pushed him out of the government. And I think Russian history would have been very different. No and doubt. he stayed on and became president. Um, and uh, instead, Yeltsin picked out of obscurity uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, first to become his prime minister and four months later to become president of the largest country in the world, a person who had never run for elected office before then. Somewhere in this time, you actually met the young Vladimir Putin. Uh, did. did he make much of an impression on you back then? Not really. No, yeah. he was working. <laughs> to be honest, um, I would have never imagined he'd become president of Russia. Uh, yeah. 
At the time, he was the deputy mayor in St. Petersburg, and his boss, Anatoly Subchak, was a really charismatic leader of the democratic movement. Um, uh, Putin was just in charge of liaison relations with uh, international organizations, and we were one of those. Uh, and we were there because uh, we're in L.A. I remember very vividly we brought some members of the uh, Los Angeles City Council uh, and the New York City Council um, to talk about how to approve a budget in a democratic city, democratically elected city. Like the guy, his name was Zev Yaroslavsky. I, I don't know. Uh, he later, I think, was a politician yeah, yeah, for yeah, many yeah. years. Yeah, still but is. Zev was very yeah. popular because his heritage came from Russia. Right. Yeah. And he was uh, he was a rock star back then, um, talking about you know uh, uh, democratic politics at the city level. <laughs> so back then, Putin just seemed to you like the typical Russian apparatchik. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. He, not exactly. Not particularly ambitious. Huh? Yeah. Not not much of an impression. His deputy made a bigger impression. Really? By the way. His Which deputy, uh, his name is Igor Sechin, and Igor Sechin uh-huh. then was a very low-level deputy. And you know, our job was chicken or fish for the you know the banquet. <laughs> that those were the ma- you know big important decisions we were making. Uh, but today he yeah. is the CEO of Rosneft, the largest <laughs> oil company in Russia. So being Putin's friends, uh, being Putin's friend, uh, can pay off in the long run. Yeah. Now looking back at the '90s in Russia. Do you suppose that the U.S. could have done more to help steer Russia toward a better outcome? I do. I mean, I wrestle with that in the book. Um, it's a tough counterfactual, right? Uh, maybe they would have wasted the money or the help. But I do think we missed a moment, particularly in 1992. I think that was a critical year. So that's the first year that Russia is an independent country from the Soviet Union. They are undertaking a massive economic reform, going from communism to capitalism is not easy. It wasn't yeah. easy in any country. Poland, Hungary, Estonia. Yeah. And yeah, they weren't the only ones who went through this. They all went but, through. But on a much larger scale, you have to admit. Because they yeah. were the largest country, yeah. largest economy. So yeah. their depression was lower. In fact, the World Bank estimates hmm. that that depression was three times worse than the American depression in the 30s, just to give you some sense of what people wow. were living through. And we did we did some things, but I don't think we did enough. Um, and remember, 1992 was an election year in America, and back then the challenger, uh, the first America firster, by the way, was a governor from Arkansas saying it's the economy, stupid. Right, right. We need yeah. to focus on our problems at <laughs> yeah. home, not abroad. Back then, President George H. W. Bush was this internationalist, and as a result of that, we kind of took our eye off the ball in Russia. I mentioned that you spent most of your life in academia. Um, what year was it when you joined the Obama administration? What, when would that have been? 2009. 2009. Same day he did, I joined. Okay. Uh, now, were you at all hesitant about getting involved with the National Security Council and taking on a more high-profile position? Yes and no. Um, you're right. I spent most of my life as an academic, and I'm ba- glad to be back at Stanford, too. Uh, it's nice to have tenure. Uh, <laughs> something to go back to after government. And I'm not a particularly partisan person when it comes mm-hmm. to foreign policy because foreign policies actually doesn't break out in Democrats and Republicans. But um, so I'd had a couple offers before from previous administrations and didn't the timing didn't quite work out. Um, but there was something about President Obama, candidate Obama that I thought was special. I worked for on his campaign. Early, early on, you know, well, 2007, I, I joined up. So when he won, um, I, I wanted to go and see if I could make a difference. And uh, it was a it was a great run for a while because, uh, one, it was great working at the White House with the team. I think we had a really great team. Uh, and two, those were cooperative years with the Russians. Uh, we actually did some important things together before things turned sour. You were one of the architects of the Russian reset, and you were present when Secretary of State Hillary Clinton presented the famously ill-fated uh, reset button that turned out to be a mistranslation. Yeah, yeah that was uh, a stupid gimmick. What, what was the translation? The actual translation? I forget. Uh, Peragruska, uh, and it should have been Perazagruska. Yeah. Um, Which means? Uh, one means reset, and the other means uh, overload. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. By the way, neither yeah. words are used much in the Russian language. 
Yeah, uh, okay. most, most computer, when you <laughs> want to say reset in Russian, you say reset yeah. Yeah. Uh, with a Russian accent. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, so that was a silly stunt. I, I write in detail about it in the book. But the moment and the concept was not silly. Mm-hmm. And uh, back then, uh, President Medvedev was in the Kremlin, not President Putin. Right. And that made a difference. Uh, he and Obama hit it off. And, you know, we did some big things. We signed a, a START treaty to reduce uh, the number of wep- nuclear weapons in the world by 30%. We got on uh, the most comprehensive sanctions against Iran ever back in 2010. Uh, we opened up supply routes to Afghanistan so that we could reduce our dependence on Pakistan, which was essential for the operation we did in 2011 against Osama right. bin Laden. Yeah. So these are these are not big deal. Yeah, not kumbaya, but, hold hands, <laughs> kind of let's yeah. have good relations. These were things that really affected our national security. But even still, I wonder if that mistranslation perhaps serves as a bit of a metaphor for mm. the reset in the sense that do you think that the reset meant something different to the Russians than it meant to the Obama administration? I think it meant something different for Medvedev than it did for Putin. In <laughs> okay. fact, we learned that yeah. pretty uh, yeah. up close and personal. So for Medvedev, remember he was a younger, he is a younger guy, you know, a yeah. decade younger, was a lawyer just like Obama, very Western oriented guy from St. Petersburg. And early on, it was clear to us in 2009, the first meeting they had was April 2009, that he wanted to be more active in the West and cooperate with us. And over the course of his presidency, the reset became his greatest achievement, mm-hmm. uh, in part because he didn't do that much on the domestic front. So he was heavily vested into making this thing work, whereas Putin was much more suspicious from the very beginning, yeah. uh, distrusted the United States generally, uh, thought that you know basically international affairs are zero sum. So if it's plus two for America, that means it's minus two for Russia. And when he came back in, uh, we saw that up close and personal became much harder to work with Russia. You talk about President Obama's first meeting with Putin. You were there for that as well. Um, He was was prime minister at the time, and you guys had this lavish breakfast at his DACA. Uh, Describe that meeting for us. Well, we went out to his house. So this is our first trip to Russia with the president. Um, uh, So the first day spent with Medvedev. Uh, and then the, that second morning, we wanted to see Putin, right? It's very delicate, mm-hmm. by the way, because Medvedev <laughs> is the president. President Obama is our leader in terms of foreign policy. So seeing Putin was always difficult uh, and an awkward dance. But we went out there. And the first hour he spent basically telling us about all the horrible things the Bush administration had done, mistakes they made. He went on for 55 minutes. Uh, without interruption. Obama's a good listener. I could have never sat that long. Uh, And by the way, he never criticized President Bush. He likes President Bush personally. It was what we now refer to as the deep state. Uh, He has a kind of deep state mentality about American foreign policy. And it got contentious from time to time. And uh, but then he got to Iraq and um, he said, you guys made a huge mistake invading Iraq. And Obama said, yeah, I agree. And that surprised Putin. He'd never heard an American say that before. And Obama reminded him that he had been against that war long before it was popular to be against that war. And that was a moment where I thought Putin was looking at, you know, this new guy and thinking, well, maybe things will be different with them. Um, And as we left, uh, we were feeling pretty good. We drove back into town. He lives about an hour outside of town. And Obama thought, well, maybe he'll go along with some of the things we want to do. Turned out not to be true. Yeah, and I think that you say that it was really the Arab Spring that led to the unraveling of the Russian reset. Some people might not see those two as related events, but how did Vladimir Putin see it? Well, Putin was was and is suspicious of of American power. And this idea that we use covert and overt power to overthrow regimes we don't like. And, and by the way, we have done that from time to time. So mm-hmm. he's got a the, the, that he is suspicious. <laughs> he, has he has a point. Okay. Uh, Obama tried to explain to him back in that meeting, that breakfast we had, that he was going to be different and he wasn't going to do those kind of things. Um, but when the Arab Spring happened in 2011, 
we were forced to make some decisions about what was happening. And I want to underscore, we did not start the Arab Spring when Putin says we were fomenting revolution there. That is not true. But we did react to events, first in Egypt, and well, first Tunisia, then Egypt, then Syria, uh, and then Libya. And I think Libya is the turning point because there, um, uh, if you remember, Gaddafi was marching his army into Benghazi, promised to wipe everybody out. We, uh, our assessment, I was at the White House at the time, um, was that this was going to be a genocidal slaughter of innocent people. So we were pushing to have military intervention to stop that. And amazingly, and I was at that meeting at the Kremlin, uh, President Medvedev agreed with us. Uh, Russians had never done that before. (laughs) Soviet leaders had never done that before, authorizing the use of force in a sovereign country. And it is ironic that the thing that was the breaking point was also, in a lot of ways, the perfect example of U.S.-Russian cooperation. Exactly. I mean, the day that we got those Security Council resolution votes, I remember we were celebrating in the White House that this was a new day in U.S.-Russian relations. But two days later, or maybe even shorter, maybe it was just a day after, Putin went on the record to say that Medvedev had made a mistake. He had never criticized President Medvedev on the on the record. And I think he thought, you know, Medvedev's drinking the reset Kool-Aid here. He's <laughs> He's been taken in by Obama. Um, and then to, the, the punctuation mark for it was later that year, not in the Middle East, but in Russia, there were massive demonstrations against mm-hmm. Putin's regime. Uh, and he, again, blamed us for that. He blamed America. He blamed Obama. And eventually, when I became ambassador, he blamed me. I wonder about his worldview, this idea that the U.S. is intervening everywhere to try and influence elections and overthrow people, whether it's in the Middle East or whether it's in Russia. Do you think that that's something in his heart of hearts he actually believes, or is that just something he puts out for public consumption domestically? So we used to debate your very excellent, hard question in the government all the time. President Obama (laughs) used to ask me your question. It is a mystery. It is a mystery. Um, And here, my thinking on it's evolved. So initially, I thought it was just instrumental. Um, You know, he was running for re-election in 2012, so he needed any argument he could have and blaming us for the protests. That that was uh, something to do to shore up his electoral base. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most certainly, some of the people around him running the election are cynical. I think all campaign people are kind of cynical, (laughs) right? Um, And and one of them told me that when I showed up as ambassador. He's like, so (laughs) thank you that you're here, Mike. You're going to help us win this election. Um, And most certainly, part of Putin thinks that way. But over time, the more I got to know him and follow him, I, I do think he believes it. I think he's a fairly paranoid guy, especially back then. And he's partly true, uh, right, by the way, I want to say that we do represent, when we're uh, at our best, we, the United States, democracy and human rights, and we stand for a more open society. And just being Americans, therefore, is a threat to the way that he likes to govern. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Ambassador Michael McFall when we come back. In just a moment. Whether your tires are new or worn, you should have the confidence to get where you need to be. That's why Michelin designed the Michelin Premier tires with worn performance in mind. Michelin Premier tires are built to maintain wet braking performance throughout the life of the tire. Get there no matter the weather thanks to the Michelin Premier Tires Evergrip technology, which helps maintain wet braking performance even as your tires wear. And now you can compare the Michelin Premier All-Season Tires Worn Tire Braking versus leading competitors at michelinman.com slash performance. That's michelinman.com slash performance. Support for today's show comes from an innovative shampoo. Introducing Control GX, the first gray-reducing shampoo from Just For Men. Just For Men helps men look their best so they can celebrate who they are, what they achieve, and how they feel. They relentlessly innovate and deliver smart hair care technology that does the work for you, making it radically easy to get the natural look you want. And now, reducing your gray is as easy as washing your hair with Control GX. Just use it as you would your regular shampoo until you like what you see. 
subtle, natural-looking results. Shampoo in, rinse out, and move on. It's that easy. Most guys get the results they want in about two weeks. Look forward to a smart look. Because when you look as good as you feel, every date night, every meeting, every guy's night out will be something to look forward to. Get 25% off Control GX using code REGROWTH25 at ControlGX.com. That's code REGROWTH25 to get 25% off Control GX at ControlGX.com. Today's podcast is sponsored by TravelGuard. Message and data rates may apply. Please do not text and drive. Insurance offered by TravelGuard Group, Inc. and underwritten by National Union Fire Insurance Company of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. For a complete description of coverage, limitations, and exclusions, go to TravelGuard.com. This ad does not necessarily describe actual events and is used for illustrative purposes only. Participants in the podcast are being compensated by TravelGuard for this advertisement. I love to travel. As a matter of fact, I've traveled to some 50 or so countries over the years, and one thing that I've learned is you're never more vulnerable to mishaps than when you're traveling. I've had luggage lost, flights canceled at the last minute, hotels that ended up being overbooked, and I wish, I wish I had had someone with experience to cover my back and make things right. Exploring the world is one of my favorite things in life, but it's so much more enjoyable when I can travel with peace of mind. For times when trips don't go as planned, there's TravelGuard travel insurance. TravelGuard staff is available 24-7 to help, and TravelGuard plans work anywhere in the world. Coverage includes flight and hotel rebooking, lost baggage, medical expenses, and more. Get coverage now for as low as $30. Text KICK to 484848. That's K-I-C-K to 484848. And now, back to the show. When Putin decided to run for president again and switch places with Medvedev, how did President Obama react to that decision? Did it surprise anyone? Because I remember at the time there were still rumors or, or the idea that maybe Medvedev was going to actually run for re-election right. and that he was going to continue this progressive agenda. That's right. Which didn't turn out to be the case. Did, right. they, did anyone take that seriously? Well, Medvedev certainly did. Uh, <laughs> did I think, anyone in the administration uh, take it seriously? No. Uh, I mean, he generally, I mean, right up until the time that it was announced, September 24th, 2011, was the date they announced that Putin was running. Uh, I'm convinced that Medvedev thought he was running really? for a second term. And, <laughs> you know, we used to see him and talk to him pretty frequently. Uh, I saw him just a couple months after that. Uh, in, of all strange places, Honolulu, Hawaii. We were there for a, <laughs> a multilateral meeting. And uh, I happened to bump into him. He actually called out to me. I was out on the beach, and he called out to me. He was sitting with a couple of aides with his Hawaiian shirts on and, <laughs> and jeans and sunglasses. Um, nobody knew who they were. And, uh, you know, it was in that conversation that I, I heard bitterness in his voice. Mm -hmm. Like, he, he definitely wanted to be really? president again. Where we know, I, I mean— uh, you know, my job as uh, as the senior Russia guy at the National Security Council was to assess probabilities. And, you know, in January, I wrote a, a memo saying we should expect that Putin's coming back and therefore our, we should try to do as much as possible before he does come back. Um, uh, uh, did we – would it have been better for America that Medvedev would have stayed? Probably. But we were always – at least I was. I can't speak for everybody. At least I always was anticipating that Putin was coming back. The perception even early on was that Medvedev was essentially just a figurehead yeah. and Vladimir Putin was the one who was really pulling the strings. Did you find that to be the case early on or did Putin give him some degree of autonomy at least? Well, that most certainly was our assumption initially in 2009 yeah. in the government and, and the intelligence assessment too, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And for very logical reasons. But over time, it changed. Um, and, and think about it. If you're sitting in the Kremlin as the president, you want to be autonomous. You're not so interested in somebody telling you what to do. The first <laughs> you time, also want to keep your life. <laughs> well, <laughs> and your job. Uh, you know, he had one vote to win to be reelected, and he didn't capture it. Uh, he didn't get Putin's <laughs> vote. But we saw it from time to time. So we saw it, for instance, when um, uh, Medvedev agreed to new sanctions on Iran in May 2010, uh, he did not have to 
but he did. He canceled the sale of an S-300 contract, a multi-billion dollar contract with the Iranians that Putin had signed. And we knew that Putin did not want to cancel that contract, and he did. Uh, Libya, that we just talked about, uh, that was clearly that they were disagreeing. Um, in fact, the meeting that he told us about it, he kicked everybody out of the room except one note-taker, myself, and, and a Russian note-taker, because he knew that if we got back to Putin, the position he was taking, that was going to create problems with, uh, with Putin. Um, so I, I think he was more autonomous than we thought it at the time. And the fact that Putin came back and made more things more difficult suggests that actually Medvedev did matter as an individual decision maker. I think it was after President Obama was reelected, you were appointed U.S. ambassador to Russia. At the same time as these U.S.-Russian relations were starting to deteriorate, uh, what was your mandate from the president going in? Well, my initial mandate was to continue the reset. Uh, it was in 2011 that we started this conversation about me going out to Moscow. Um, uh, and it was at the height of this cooperation you and I were just talking about. It was right around the time of Libya when, uh, I, you know, most academics, by the way, just spent a couple years in government. And that was always my plan, to spend two years and, and go home. Uh, the president had a different idea. He said, we were doing too much positive work for me to leave now. And that's when he came up with this idea for me to go to Moscow. By the time I got there, uh, you know, there were several decisions, uh, discussions. First, I had to convince my family that we're going to go to Moscow. Then I had to go through the review process and all the conflict of interest stuff, that all that paperwork Stanford co-owned my house at the time, so we had to figure all that out. <laughs> then uh, the Senate, you know, uh, that was oh, yeah. a, that was a process. <laughs> um, that little uh, blip that was about four months long. Um, and by the way, it was not about me personally. I had a lot of report from Republic uh, support from Republicans, mm -hmm. uh, but they were uh, keeping me hostage uh, because of certain things that they didn't uh, trust President Obama to do. So by the time I got there, the reset uh, was all over. Uh, you know, Putin was running for re-election. There were these massive demonstrations. Putin was blaming us for it. And then when I arrived, uh, the on national television, the, even the day before I had appeared at the embassy, I remember it. It was Martin Luther King Day, so we had an extra day off. Uh, there was a hit piece on me on Russian television yeah. saying that I was sent to stir up uh, opposition to Putin and, and foment a revolution against him. Yeah, it's a hell of a reception to get yeah, for yeah. right off of the plane there. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I thought I was Mr. Reset, right? I was like, <laughs> yeah. can, why are you guys yeah. so worked up about me? Don't you remember all this good work we had done? But things had changed inside Russia. Yeah, and I think you said that you had protesters following you around and harassing you. You had, at some point, didn't they even try to put out a rumor that you were a pedophile of all things? Yeah, they did. God. Uh, all those things happen. And, um, yeah, that, that pedophile video in particular was troubling because how do you, what do you do to respond to that, right? You you go mm -hmm. on Twitter and say, I'm not a pedophile, and then you're <laughs> arguing with trolls about that? Yeah. That didn't seem like a great strategy. We initially, it was actually put yeah. up on Facebook initially, and we, uh, um, I'm sorry, YouTube, uh, and we got Google to take it down, uh, to their credit. Huh. Uh, but then it reappeared on other Russian websites, and um, to this day, if you go on to the Russian search engine, engine Yandex, and put pedophile and McFall in there, you'll get three million hits. Yeah. Earlier, you mentioned that you had a friend who actually was Putin's political advisor during that campaign. And as you said earlier, I guess he said that your arrival was a great thing for the campaign. Yeah. Essentially, to some degree, was Putin running against you rather than his actual opponent at the time? Well, yeah, they were blaming us for the protests. Mm -hmm. And and then I became kind of the poster child of that, that those things. Literally, they put my face on posters, mm -hmm. uh, photoshopped me, making it look like I was campaigning, making it look like, uh, you know, one of them, I, I remember very vividly in March 2012, they said the political circus is coming to town again. It was a big demonstration. 
and the artistic director of this political circus is me. Um, so it was pretty relentless. And there were also more sinister forms of harassment that you and your colleagues dealt with. Uh, like what? Were you tailed, recorded? What What did you have to deal yeah. with? Yeah, all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and and not just me, but uh, other people at the embassy and and. You know, at least I had a, a, a big security detail. Um, and, and, you know, let me say a couple things. I mean, if the, if the FSB, the successor organization of the KGB, mm-hmm. if they want to follow you when you're in Russia, uh, they can do so without you knowing. They're, they're really good at it. By the way, they're also really good at recording all your phone calls and reading all your email and recording your conversations even in your house. And where I lived in Spasa House, we had to assume that everything we did was being recorded. Um, and in fact, Spasa House is located downtown Moscow, a very expensive city. And around it are all these apartment buildings. Uh, and they all have for rent signs on them, but nobody ever moves in. Uh, so imagine how, you know, yeah. who's using those spaces to look down on us at every angle. So that got, st- you had to get used to that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh what became a little more, you know, some kind of psycho game that they were playing with me is sometimes they'd follow me and, and they wanted us to know that we were being followed, right? Showing up at my son's soccer game, uh, showing up to sit in church wow. behind us. Just uh, as an intimidation yeah, factor, a psychological a, thing? Exactly. Wow. Exactly. Tailing you, you said. So uh, I remember one day a uh, car showed up, was obviously following us. And, um, you know, my, my attitude was, okay, no big deal. Let's just go home. But it got under the skin of my driver, you know, and suddenly he's trying to lose the guy like we're in some movie. <laughs> You're kidding. And at, at some point, I'm like, just, he knows where we're going. We're not going to lose him. <laughs> um, but yeah, they played those kind of games. They would stop my car. Uh, one day they, I was parked at the ministry of foreign affairs and Did I came out do that? and, uh, they had arrested, they had seized my car cause it had some illegal lights on it. <laughs> they took my driver's license play, license and, you know, he lost his job basically because of that. So that kind of petty harassment happened pretty often. I mean, it must've been hard for your wife and your kids. You had two young kids. Yeah. Uh, was that ever tense for them? The idea of being followed or maybe having to watch what you say for being recorded yeah. and that sort of thing? Yes and no. Uh, I do remember you reminded me um, when we first got there and we go into some of our briefings uh, with my wife. Uh, they said that if you ever needed to have a marital spat, <laughs> there was a special room yeah, uh, really, at no the embassy kidding. that you could go in. Uh, and and we never had to use it. Uh, <laughs> but that was the kind of precautions they took. They didn't want that to be recorded. Really? That's some real Get Smart stuff yeah, there. And, and by, I'm glad you brought Jeez. up Get Smart because the room was like you had to go through six doors and all kinds of things, just like the movie. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, but but I do want to say, generally speaking, uh, our children didn't know about it. We didn't mm-hmm. talk about that with them. And so they it, that didn't affect them too much. We would joke about it from time to time. The protesters outside of our house, one day, really early on, we got this red notice from the security that they're going to be outside of our house and we're probably not going to be able to get out and you know, my son joked, or my, I think it was my son, well, if it's going to be a siege, we better go get Dunkin' Donuts before they show up, right? So <laughs> we did use humor. And yeah. um, my wife, by the way, uh, Donna is her name, she was always more relaxed when she knew it was the government because there were yeah. other crazies that really? were saying crazy things about me and death threats. And so better really? the government than some nationalistic group. Uh, yeah, um, who were they? Well, this is what Putin does. You know, they stir up this stuff. They Mm -hmm. say that we're um, some enemy of the state. And then neo-Nazi groups and neo-nationalist groups kind of take it upon themselves to be heroes. And those are the kinds of people that would show up from time to time uh, at, at my house outside to harass me. And we never knew exactly what their relationship was with the government, but, um, there were other more crazy things, you know, death threats. I don't want to joke about it, uh, mm-hmm. usually on Twitter or Facebook. And then the Russian government was usually cooperative. Um, 
but these were people stirred up by the propaganda that they were seeing about America. When you left the embassy, uh, it was the same day, I think, or just before yeah. the annexation of Crimea. Yes. Did you have any hint of that? Were, were there rumblings in the embassy that something big was about to happen? Yes and no. So the uh, to go back just a few days and weeks earlier, um, right before that happened, the government in Ukraine fell. The right, president, right. His, his name is Yanukovych. Yanukovych, he, who was Putin's puppet, sort of, or he portrayed was, that way. That, yeah. I think that's a that's fair— accurate. I yeah. think that's accurate. Okay. Uh, he then fled to Russia, uh, and a new government took over that was much more Western-leaning. And at the time, I was at the Sochi Olympics, the Winter Olympics, and some in our government thought that this was a really great thing, right? Another victory for democracy— uh, I didn't. I was worried about it. Oh, really? Because I thought Putin was going to do. He was going to strike back. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was going to be a reaction to this. He was not just going to take this laying down, and that was Crimea. That's that's exactly what happened. Um, you know, we debated what the various reactions might be, and uh, some in the government thought it might be Crimea. Uh, I would not say that. That the majority in our government thought he was going to do that. That that actually was surprising that he would, you know, annexation after all is something we thought we'd gotten rid of after World War II. So <laughs> yeah, now we were I back mean, to so that. Had anything been annexed post Stalin? Not to my knowledge. Huh. No. Do you consider annexation a fait accompli at this point? I mean, it seems to me that there doesn't seem to be very much will to actually fight anymore. Yeah, that's a hard question, and I don't have an easy answer. Yeah. Um, I think it's very important to keep to the principle that we do not recognize annexation ever, because mm-hmm. uh, once you open that can of worms, you know all kinds of borders can be redrawn, including even around here. You know, uh, uh, you know, if you go back 150 years, um, so that I think is very dangerous. And I would just remind your listeners that. Um, you know, back when Stalin annexed Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, uh, most people in the world said, well, that's that. That is a fait accompli. They're part of the Soviet Union. And they were part of the Soviet Union for a long, long mm-hmm. time. And then things changed, and now they're independent countries. So uh, I think we have to have the same long game mentality in thinking about Crimea. Uh, I want to ask what you thought years later during the 2016 election, as it came out that Russian operatives were hacking the DNC and trying to hack voter registrations. Did that sound familiar to you or was it shocking even to you? Well, the methods were familiar. Mm -hmm. So, you know, stealing emails and using them for political purposes, I'd seen that many times before. Uh, I once had a uh, a speech I gave to the U.S.-Russia Business Council of all innocuous things at the Marriott Hotel in Moscow, recorded and then spliced in a way to make it sound like I was, we were going to overthrow the Putin regime. Um, so that that is an old tactic. Disinformation, we've been talking about that and running ads on Facebook uh, to, to foment polarization and to support one candidate or another. I'd seen that before. But I was surprised that he would be so audacious as to do it in our presidential election. Uh, that was surprising to me and and to a lot of people. I think it was mm-hmm. surprising to the, the Obama administration at the time as well. And maybe that's why they were so slow to respond. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about Compromat because I'm sure that you were briefed and all of your colleagues at the embassy were briefed on this sort of thing beyond just government officials. Is it common for the FSB to surveil and maybe even record, try and get compromat on a U.S. businessman like, say, I don't know, Donald Trump? Trump. (laughs) Is that a typical thing that they do? Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, A, they have the capacity to do it, and B, they will do it for a much wider uh, population than you might think. And most certainly the Ritz-Carlton, where... uh, Donald Trump stayed in 2013. I was ambassador then. Uh, that is a hotel that has tremendous capabilities. Really? Um, what do you mean by that? Is that something you can elaborate on? Probably not. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. But I can You're tell not you talking one about the room service, right? <laughs> uh, I, I can tell you a story because I got it okay. cleared for my book. You know, my book I had to get cleared twice. Oh yeah, I'll bet. because I did not want any uh, secret information bleeding into the pages. So. Uh, so this story is in the book. So I, I've stayed at the Ritz-Carlton with uh, President Obama. 
we stayed there in 2009. That's the hotel we were in. And uh, to have a confidential conversation with Obama, we built a submarine-like structure, uh, pieces, piece by piece, shipped from the United States and built it inside one of the suites (laughs) in the Ritz-Carlton to make sure that our conversation was not recorded. So that's... Just to give you a sense of the effort that we went into to make yeah. sure. And and by the way, with like weird, wacko music spinning around to try to <laughs> d- dilute uh, any recording devices. Um, uh, power came in from some very strange way. Um, and, you know, just you need to assume that if you stay at a place mm-hmm. like that, anything you're you're doing could be recorded. Now, I don't know if they did, obviously. And I obviously don't know what uh, Mr. Trump was doing at the Ritz-Carlton, but the capacity to do that is is there. Well, I want to end by just asking you a couple quick questions about Vladimir Putin and maybe as best you can try and get into his psyche. What do you think he wants from this relationship with the U.S.? Or, or does he care about having that relationship at all anymore? I think generally he wants the United States to play a a smaller role in the world. He wants us to be weaker. He wants us to turn inward. Um, He definitely wants things like the NATO alliance to break up so that that can give him an opportunity to have bilateral relationships with countries like Germany and Italy, not Mm -hmm. uh, mediated by the NATO alliance. Um, and as we said earlier, I do think he thinks of us as a threat to his regime uh, because he's he rules in a non-democratic way. Um, that all said, uh, I do think he was optimistic about trying to build a relationship with President Trump. Uh, candidate Trump, after all, said some things as a, uh, during 2016 that were friendly to Putin. Uh, you know, he... He said he might look into recognizing Crimea He's, uh, as part of Russia. He said he'd, he would look into lifting the sanctions. He was pretty tough on NATO, uh, and he never talked about democracy and human rights. Um, they are now disappointed. I think that's pretty clear that they thought there was going to be new momentum with President Trump. They blame the deep state again, uh, just like they did with uh, President Bush. Um, and, and so I'm not I don't think there's a, a going to be a big opportunity for breakthrough. And to me, that's good because I'm worried about uh, the way President Trump speaks about uh, foreign policy in general, but especially with Putin. And and I think his administration's got a pretty good policy towards Russia, by the way. I, I actually think they're doing a pretty really? good job. Uh, but the president himself has his own policy. <laughs> and, <laughs> okay. and, uh, and, yeah, and that's true. what scares me when he says – you know, he he just gets up. He gets mixed up means and ends. Mm-hmm. Uh, Interesting. The goal yeah. of a, any policy towards any country should be uh, things that advance our objectives, mm-hmm. and the means are to get along, or sometimes it may be to contain them. Whereas he mixes that up. He's made the goal a good relationship with Putin. Mm-hmm. And by the way, he personalizes everything. I think that's very inappropriate. It's not. It's not about. Putin and Trump or or Trump and Kim Jong-un, it's about the United States and Russia. And and a good relationship, well, what does that mean? You have a nice time at the dacha and, yeah. then, and then what? And yeah. so I Neville think Chamberlain thought he had a good relationship for a while. Well, there you go. That's a good point. Like yeah. that can never be the goal. That has to be a means to an end. Yeah. Now, could Putin step down from power even if he wanted to, or are there too many people depending on him staying in office at this point? I don't know the answer to that, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but my guess is that he can't step down. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are just too many people. We mentioned Igor Sechin earlier, right? Yeah. Uh, CEO of Rosneft. His property rights are not guaranteed by the rule of law or some courts. His property rights are guaranteed by Putin. And so if Putin is not in the Kremlin, he's got a lot of trouble. And there are lots of people like that. Um, And therefore, they have a vested interest in Putin staying. And I think it would be very difficult for him to retire at this point. So if he just wanted to lead a normal life and live in his DACA and not take on a political role, he would either perhaps end up dead or in prison or could be knows? pretty hard. 
Yeah. And and the, he needs to be reminded of what he did mm-hmm. the last time he was hired to yeah. do that job. So yeah. remember, Boris Yeltsin picked him out of obscurity. Um, and his one job uh, that was guaranteed was to not mess around with Yeltsin and his family and the oligarchs that were connected to him. And Putin kept his word with respect to Yeltsin and his family. You've never heard about them being arrested. Mm. They, they're protected. Right. But the business yeah. people around him, uh, one of them, the one who is the most responsible for Putin becoming president, uh, Berzovsky was his name. He's uh, He committed suicide, allegedly, in London. Just months after Putin took over, he went after him, and Berzovsky was in exile. Another oligarch, Gusinski, same thing. And then Hartakovsky in 2003, the richest man in Russia at the time, Putin put him in jail, seized his oil company, and eventually it uh, ended up in Ear Sessions' hand. Wow. That is a story yeah. that he did, and he has to worry that somebody might do the same thing to him should he step yeah. down. Yeah, I'd rather be a poor man in America than a rich man in Russia, <laughs> I'll tell you that. <laughs> That's a great phrase. <laughs> well, again, the book is called From Cold War to Hot Peace, An American Ambassador in Putin's Russia. Michael McFall, thanks so much for talking with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks again to Ambassador Michael McFall for coming on the podcast. Once more, you can order From Cold War to Hot Peace, An American Ambassador in Putin's Russia on Amazon or Audible. And keep up with Ambassador McFall on Twitter at at McFall or on his website, michaelmcfall.com. Whether your tires are new or worn, you should have the confidence to get where you need to be. That's why Michelin designed the Michelin Premier Tires with worn performance in mind. Michelin Premier Tires are built to maintain wet braking performance throughout the life of the tire. Get there no matter the weather thanks to the Michelin Premier Tires Evergrip technology, which helps maintain wet braking performance even as your tires wear. And now you can compare the Michelin Premier All-Season Tires Worn Tire Braking versus leading competitors at michelinman.com slash long-lasting performance. That's michelinman.com slash long-lasting performance. Support for today's show comes from Control GX, the first shampoo that gradually reduces gray from just for men. Just use Control GX as you would your regular shampoo until you like what you see. Subtle, natural-looking results. Shampoo in, rinse out, move on. Most guys get the results they want in about two weeks. Look forward to a smart look with Control GX. Get 25% off Control GX using code REGROWTH25 at ControlGX.com. That's code REGROWTH25 to get 25% off Control GX at ControlGX.com. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.